Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, we look at the recent trend in the soccer world of reactively firing managers. Is this a successful strategy for teams, and why is it happening so often? My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, we have not podcasted consistently in quite a long time, um, and I want to give us an opportunity to explain why. And to do that, I want to turn the floor over to you for some personal news, and then we're going to dive in today. Yeah, it, it, it is largely, first it was Chad's fault because he went to Europe, but it has largely recently been my fault um, because I have moved back to Nashville uh, and I got a new job with HCA Healthcare, a healthcare corporation doing communications that I start on uh, Monday of next week, which I'm super excited for. Uh, but it's been a really busy time, you know, figuring out onboarding and a massive cross-state move after six years living in Virginia. It's just been, you know, it's exciting stuff, but it, there's been a lot going on and moves make you very busy. I uh, I kind of like, you know, like across town moves always make you busy and you feel like, oh man, this is, there's so much going on. And then when you add like an eight hour drive across state boundaries and doing it with the cat and all that kind of stuff. It just, it gets that much crazier. So it's been, uh, I'm all settled now. I moved in on Saturday. Uh, so I guess like four days ago or something like that. And, um, I'm glad to be back in Nashville, but it's been, uh, it's been a lot, but we're back with the sports now. So. Yeah. Let me just say congratulations on Thank this you. new opportunity and anyone who is listening can, can reach out to John on Twitter and offer their congratulations. Um, I, I know I'm sincerely hoping that your your new corporate overlords continue to allow this podcast to happen with you on it. I do hope and so. That your <laughs> your various levels of controversial opinions are are fine. Um, <laughs> that is sincerely. Um, but, I'll yeah. inform you if anything otherwise is the case. But I, I believe so for now. <laughs> as far as we know, this podcast will continue. <laughs> and, uh, no, but seriously, I, I know it's great to to move back near family and, and mm-hmm. kind of go to a place that's been been home for a long time. So again, congrats. And it's, it's, uh, it's really exciting. And I, I, I think there would have been a season of, of the year where taking a month or six week break from podcasting would not have really been that big of a deal. But mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the sports, we kind of picked the worst possible time to go dark mode. <laughs> we really because did. Because <laughs> there has been maximum amounts of content going on. So, um, we're going to go ahead and dive right in. And if we, we feel a little rushed today, it's because um, by the time you listen to this podcast, the Premier League title is going to be decided. We yeah, are recording much. at 1230 and at 3 p.m. Eastern time, 2 p.m. Central, where John is living now. Manchester City are going to play Arsenal, and that game is going to decide the title race for the most part. And uh, we're going to talk about soccer here in a little bit. But before we do that... John, we've watched a lot of basketball in the past like couple weeks. We have watched a lot of basketball. And there's been a lot of really great stuff in the NBA. Um, and I, I feel like you've probably watched even more than I have. Um, I know you certainly have been staying up later than I have for the, for the late games. So mm-hmm. why don't you go ahead and, uh, and uh, set the scene here and, and lead me where, where, what storylines you want to go to? Oh man, you're really putting me on the spot here because I like, <laughs> I definitely have watched some basketball. I wouldn't give myself a, a lot of credit for like really closely watching all these games. So I'm not like, I'm not suddenly an NBA expert, unlike 
unlike the Masters, which we didn't talk about, but I watched like the entirety of the Masters a couple weeks ago, and I was very proud of myself. Um, we didn't talk about the Masters. The Masters was a good tournament this year. It was a good tournament, and I watched golf for the first time ever, which is a whole other win for Chad. Um, yeah. But back to the basketball. Yeah, it's been interesting. I When all these series started, you know, I normally don't pay attention to the NBA until the playoffs start. Um, so mm. NBA playoff action starts and I started buckling in for some of these games. And I think I vocalized to you at some point during like the first couple games of the series, like I'm kind of bored by a lot of these series right now. It feels like there's a lot of like not particularly close games. doesn't feel like there's a lot of jeopardy in each game. Um, but that has completely changed over the last week or so as we've gotten deeper into these series. And I found myself really enjoying what's been going on. Um, the Jimmy Butler show against the Milwaukee Bucks, I think it's the place where I want to start just because maybe it was yeah. one of the most remarkable things. Well, really one of the most remarkable things we've seen in NBA playoff basketball ever. Like to put it in context, the Heat are 3-1 up on the Bucks. Um, who were, I believe, the number one seed in the conference, right? They were. Yeah, the Bucks have the yeah. number one seed. They're and not the dead Heat yet. Were, they might be dead tonight. Right. And the Heat were a play-in team. Um, Jimmy Butler, to put the Heat up 3-1, scored 56 points, which was tied for the fourth most points in the NBA playoff game ever, putting him among yeah. the ranks of MJ, Chuck, Will Chamberlain, like... That's elite company for a player who, you know, people talk about his playoff exploits a lot, but that's an incredible performance. Well, if you think about just for him to be the all-time playoff single-game scorer for the Miami Heat, mm-hmm. that means that's like true too. Yeah, that's like that's more than LeBron James ever scored, and he or won Dwayne two Wade. championships there. Yeah. That's more than Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Shaquille O'Neal. They were like. A legitimate pantheon of of superstars who have played meaningful playoff basketball for the Miami Heat, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Butler is number one in terms of a single game playoff performance. Um, it is you know in in the two of LeBron's first championships, he never had a scoring game like Jimmy Butler just had. Jimmy right. Butler is not a universally loved figure. He's a very controversial like locker room guy. He's very intense. Sure. Um, he's also been a bit of a journeyman, which he doesn't have an established brand with one particular team. You know, he's been in Chicago. He's been um, in. Wasn't he with? Wasn't he in the, with the Seventy Sixers for a little bit? And then he was in Miami now. So he's kind of been all over the place. But in terms of just an all-around offensive game, it's hard to find somebody who shoots the ball and attacks the rim as well as Jimmy Butler does. He mm-hmm. is a really, really, really good, and I would say underrated, offensive player. Um, the question has always been, can he be the best player on a championship team? We know that he's been the best player on a team that went to the finals mm-hmm. in 2020 and um, lost the Lakers in the bubble. But, yeah, man, it was a really, really great performance, and I think that presuming that they beat the Bucks, which I think you and I both expect to happen at this point, I don't know if they're going to get beaten I, I I do think I don't I wouldn't pick them I definitely wouldn't I think I would probably pick the Celtics right now to come out of the East, mm-hmm. but they're 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 a force to be reckoned with. Which for the for to say about the eighth seed who had to play come in from the play in tournament and beat the Bulls 
just to be there is uh, it's quite something to be saying about that team. Yeah, I think the only thing to note about the Heat, I don't, I haven't seen any more recent injury updates. Um, but obviously, having one player basically shoulder your entire offensive burden is a lot to ask in the multiple playoff series. And I know, I think Tyler Hero um, broke his hand or something, and I, he's a big part of the Miami's offense, um, especially he is. in I've big shooting I've seen Victor Victor Oladipo has been hurt as well. Yeah, um, so I've been really excited to see Kevin problem. Love playing well, though. I like Kevin mm-hmm. Love a lot. Yeah, so so I think I think in terms of their longevity in the playoffs, I think injuries are something to watch for because I've seen Butler play games like that in my limited NBA watching, and then you know if he doesn't have like an absolutely stellar game and you have injuries across the board elsewhere, then it's hard to match the production that you've lost from him not like scoring 50 points right so i think that that'll be something to watch but i do think they'll get past the, past the box here um yeah i'm really interested in the king's warriors series i think that's my favorite obviously it's the closest right now but i think that's just been since game one has been my favorite series um the kings i believe won the first two mm-hmm. and now the warriors have won the last two and have come back um and it's just felt really well matched uh, Darren Fox and uh, it's Marcus Monk, right? Um, Malik Monk. Malik Monk have both been absolutely excellent uh, throughout this series. And the Warriors, obviously the Warriors, defending NBA champions. Um, but I think it would be incredible if the Kings in their first to the trip to the playoffs in ages could get past the Warriors. And I think they do have the quality to, but they're going to need to get a win soon. In terms of a breakout performer, these playoffs this year, if you were going to pick one, it would definitely be De'Aaron Fox, right? who is an incredible offensive player. He and Malik Monk actually played in college together at Kentucky. Oh, Kentucky, yeah. And so they have a really interesting chemistry that is kind of, a kind of it was a bit of a journey for Malik Monk to end up at, um, at Sacramento, but they're together now. They obviously play really well together. DeMontis Sabonis, who was in the regular season, was... Sacramento's best player has not been really that good, but um, Fox is more than made up for it. I, th- I think he would be the breakout performer this year. Um, he has injured his hand pretty badly, I and he's going to play through it. Um, it's a finger injury, and he's going to play through it, and he's going to play game five. This is one of those series where so far only the home teams have won, mm-hmm. and uh, as they always say, a, a playoff series doesn't start until someone wins on the road, and so these next couple games are going to be huge. It going back to Sacramento, uh, a, a really, really hostile environment for the Warriors to go into and play in. Um, I don't know. I, I do think that this is a series that probably will go seven. Mm-hmm. And um, as often does with the Warriors, so much of it comes down to can Draymond Green keep his cool? Because <laughs> part of his legacy has been missing really important basketball games due to suspension. It happened in 2016 when the Cavaliers won the. NBA Finals, and it's happened already in this series where he's already picked up a, a flagrant two and then was suspended for an additional game for stomping on DeMontis Sabonis. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's been several different series with some with some pretty violent conduct that have led to some interesting uh, officiating decisions. But mm-hmm. whenever Draymond Green is in the is in the conversation for for some sort of misconduct, everyone kind of is like, well, saw that coming. Mm-hmm. So where do you land on this? As someone who's watched the NBA for a long time, um, 
there have been all these incidents. Draymond Green obviously was ejected. Um, when I saw the stamp, I was like, there's no way you can let anyone stay on a basketball court for that. Yeah. Obviously, when you're wearing cleats in a cleat-wearing sport, that's much more serious. If that happened in soccer, I, I, you might be like permanently suspended like or like a really big really big band because that's like incredibly dangerous but even even without cleats right that's still a pretty dangerous move that he did um and so to me i was like of course eject him i don't know why this is even a question and it doesn't seem strange to me to suspend him either people seem to disagree across the board Mm -hmm. in the media on that um and i guess there's been some arguments that Various other players, including Joel Embiid, uh, James Harden, Dylan Brooks, that there is not a consistent standard of suspensions being applied to these players in comparison to the suspension that Draymond Green got afterward. Where do you stand on that? Do you think it's fair? Um, Because I don't know. I, I guess I understand the argument that maybe some of those other players should have been suspended. Especially Embiid should have been ejected. I don't know how he wasn't ejected for what he did in comparison. But uh, I guess it's just, to me, the green thing It's on its own. It makes complete sense for him to be suspended in my mind. Yeah, I mean, part of the NBA's disciplinary policy involves whether someone is a repeat offender. That right. is an actual factor that they consider. And, and if you do, then Draymond Green gets zero benefit of the doubt. There right. is no player in the NBA who gets less benefit of the doubt than Draymond Green. I thought he should have been suspended. The The reason why people would say don't suspend him, I've never, I haven't heard the reason of, well, what he did actually wasn't bad. I've heard the reason of don't let the ref, don't let the officials decide the series. Like, like, like for the sake of the entertainment of the series, we should let Draymond right. Green play, which is just not how justice works. Right. I did see someone, an entire column written by an athletic writer, literally that just said that. Right. Yeah. Which, like, I'm sorry, that's not how justice works. Right. What he did was worthy of an ejection and a suspension. I yeah. do agree with you that Joel Embiid should have been ejected for provoking Claxton. Like that, like that. The the instigation that Embiid did was just as bad as what Claxton did. Um, that got Claxton ejected later right. on for for picking up two flagrants. <clears throat> Dylan Brooks, obviously, he was also ejected and then suspended for an additional game. That made perfect sense to me as well. You can't do what he did. You, it, it's not something that happened. Like that, that's something that every time that happens, every time someone gets hit in the groin intentionally, that mm-hmm. results in, in an ejection and a suspension. Just ask Draymond Green again <laughs> about that. So right. <laughs> I, I haven't had a single complaint with how they've handled these except for Embiid. I think mm-hmm. that for the most part in these kind of three really high profile instances, they've gotten them all pretty much right um i have no i just have no sympathy for draymond green's antics that is part of what you sign up for when you want draymond green on your team is that you're gonna get good play he's a generational defensive talent he's changed the way basketball is played as a big and he also will miss games due to his behavior and that's just part of what i mean the season started with him punching his own teammate like <laughs> yeah that's right what do we I expect here that. like <laughs> this season started with him punching jordan Poole and being suspended by his own team and so of course it ends with him being suspended that's, that's what he does that's the kind of person he's always been and this should not be a surprise to anyone like <laughs> that's a completely valid saying? take that's a completely valid take and i mean you saw it like he literally stamped on the guy's chest 
right? And then goes over to the Sacramento fans and basically boos them and like yes. eggs them on and says, look, look at me. I am the captain. You know, like I, are you not entertained yeah. as I have literally just like assaulted one of your players? Like, of course he should be suspended. There's no question. Right. He was intentionally violent and he wanted it to be. And like, right. It was intentional that, and, and excessive. Yeah. And if that's, if that's your attitude on the basketball court and those are the actions you're doing, then you shouldn't be playing. Like, yeah, there's zero, there has to be a zero tolerance policy for violence. Um, and I think that should obviously apply to everyone, including potential MVP talents like Embiid. But aside from that, I don't have any questions or like complaints about what happened either. Having seen, having seen that incident live, there was no doubt in my mind. So I think any, I'm glad we're on the same page here. Any arguments to the contrary are ridiculous. Yeah, I don't, I don't accept them. <laughs> John, something I want to talk about a little bit is Kawhi Leonard. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I think he's kind of his absence in the most of in the majority of this series was really significant because I think that with Kawhi Leonard healthy, the the Clippers were a real wild card team to kind of maybe upset the Spurs, uh, upset the Suns, and and do something here. Sure. He hurt himself in Game One, played through it in Game Two, and then missed Games Three through Five, and he is a player who has kind of become defined by the idea of load management. He misses a lot of regular season games. He, you know, doesn't play back-to-backs on the road. He has his whole routine of how he keeps himself healthy by missing games. And so when he misses three deciding playoff games, that's obviously a really big deal. And right. there's been a lot of discourse about this. I saw Stephen A. Smith this morning on First Take. You saw it as well, saying that, mm-hmm. He should be forced to retire because he's unavailable as he's been consistently unavailable for his team. And I guess I just want to say my, my only thought on this is that I think that the Clippers handled this situation kind of poorly by not announcing earlier that he was out for the series. Mm-hmm. Because by by making it a day-to-day decision, that has two really bad implications. The first one is it allows for the idea that maybe there are some other factors involved. For example, like over the past weekend, um, Kawhi Leonard's sister was sentenced to life in prison without parole Mm -hmm. for a robbery that turned into a homicide in a Las Vegas casino. And so when you have something like that in your personal life come up in the midst of a playoff series and then immediately you stop playing, it can lead to questions that maybe there's something else going on that doesn't actually involve your injury that are involved. And then the second thing is when you're listed as day-to-day, it kind of it kind of makes it sound like the injury is more about your pain management than it is about structural like bodily damage. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of makes it seem like he's choosing not to play just because he has a low pain tolerance or because he doesn't want to play. And then after the series is over, they announce that like, no, this is a serious injury. He completely tore his meniscus. Um, they announced that today. That's just that's not right. something that you can and should play through. So the idea that he sat out makes perfect sense. But like they should have announced that after game two and said, "Hey, Kawhi tore his meniscus. He is not going to play the rest of the season. We are sorry." And right. like that kind of closes the narrative. But by making this a day to day and game to game decision, it's it's created an entire week of a news cycle that has been really unhealthy and really unproductive. If anyone wants to see a good response to this, I think 
I, I, I think that besides the guys who do the, the, the halftime show at TNT, there's no one who's better talking about basketball right now than J.J. Redick. And mm-hmm. he was on first take when Stephen A. said that this morning. And his response to J.J. Redick, and, or his response to Stephen A. Smith and Chris Russo was exceptional. I think J.J. Redick is an absolute media superstar. Um, I really, really like him. And I thought that he, he handled it really well. But I just I don't like this whole discourse around Kawhi. He's a guy who just has had injuries, kind of similar to Zion Williamson. And, like, what do you want him to do? He tore his meniscus. He can't play basketball. We shouldn't be questioning his competitive drive. We shouldn't be questioning his will to play. We shouldn't be questioning his commitment to his team. Yeah, no, I entirely agree. And, like, on the flip side, I absolutely understand the argument that, like, if you're paying a superstar to be your team superstar, you want them to be fit. That's just how it is. Um, this is competitive sports, you know, and you're spending a lot of money to have a player that can win you games, right? Um, and when you playoff games in particular. So obviously, you know, that goes without saying. A player who's an intense injury risk um, is a risk that a team, if they sign him, is taking. You know, I'm sure they knew that Kawhi had a history of injuries when they signed him. You know, that yeah. was not in question. Um, but you are signing right, a two-time NBA champion, right? Two-time, yep. Yeah, and two-time MVP, as far as I remember, right? So that's a really good player. Two-time finals MVP. Finals MVP, okay. Yeah. Um, who clearly, you know, has had a great career, and maybe he's at the tail end of it. And that's okay. You know, maybe his salary should reflect that, and maybe they made a bad decision if they signed him for too much money. Um, that's on the Clippers, right? That's not mm-hmm. on Kawhi. Yeah. Um, if Kawhi gets to the point where he feels like he can't play, you know, that's a whole nother story, right? If he just feels like his body, you know, players have different longevity. Like, obviously, LeBron is still playing and still performing pretty well. Some players just don't last that long. and That's totally fine. Um, but to make this a personal kind of like attack on Kawhi just seems unnecessary to me, obviously in, in reference to Stephen A. Um, and just in general, you know, like I don't think if teams want to cut a player from their contract because they're not fit enough to play, then, you know, that's on them, right? That's a financial decision the team has to make. Um, and beyond that, I I don't think that the media, particularly people like Stephen A, should be shoving their noses in where they don't belong in terms of players' health. Yeah, I mean, like, no one's questioning Giannis Antetokounmpo or John Morant for missing games in this playoffs. Even though them missing games has also significantly harmed their teams who are Mm -hmm. now most likely going to lose their respective playoff series as as very, very high seeds. The Grizzlies as a two-seed are about to lose. The Bucks as a one-seed are likely about to lose. And no one's saying, oh, well, Giannis must not care. Like, no, he was hurt. Ja, we all saw him hurt his hand. Like, it happened. We all right. saw it. And so to say that because Kawhi, like, we didn't actually see his injury and, oh, well, he played the next game. Like, you tear your meniscus and go play basketball. Like, try it. <laughs> yeah, literally. Try it. Do it. Stephen A or whoever. <laughs> just don't, like, I, I just don't like the idea that we're going to question an athlete's character, their competitiveness, their commitment, mm-hmm. because 
a, med- a, a, a scientific medical team said, hey, sorry, you tore your meniscus, you're done for the season. Right. That is a, an objective medical decision. It has nothing to do with how much Kawhi does or does not care about his team or winning a championship. He clearly is a person who cares about winning championships. He plays professional basketball at a very high level and mm-hmm. has won championships for two different teams when he was the best player on both times. Like, right. His resume is not up for debate, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's silly. And to imply that, like you said, the silliest part of it, of, of his entire rant, right, was saying that we don't see Kawhi Leonard's injuries. Like, what a ridiculous thing to say. If you get injured in training, you get injured in training. That's just how it is. Right. You know, right. like that doesn't make any sense at all. And all you're doing in there is intentionally implying something about a player's character. That's literally all it is. Which, if you want to know why he did that, go back a couple months and listen to our podcast about sports debate shows. And you'll learn exactly why it would be in Stephen A's <laughs> interest to say something like that. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> John, let's talk about, um, I guess, do you have anything else on the basketball? Do you want to make any predictions mm. or say anything at this point i don't i don't you know, know enough about basketball to all right about the Me NBA either. to I don't do make confident yeah <laughs> let's talk about some soccer john i and again like this is all kind of under the framework with the, with the with the overhanging fact that there is a huge game today that you have a huge interest in and uh, we're all very excited about that and we're not going to do a a specific you know game by game recap of the season or, or talk too much about how we think the rest of the season is going to go we do want to do something, which is just notice a really unique trend that has taken place this season that has indicated a significant change in the way that soccer teams are being run. And that is the speed and impatience with which teams are letting go of their managers and coaches. Um, this is the most... I, is the, I think this is right. This is the most managers that have been re- removed during a season in any season in the Premier League history. I think, is that right? I believe that's correct, yes. Yeah. At 14. Um, there are multiple. 14 managers have been sacked this season. And there are at least two teams who are on their third manager this season. There are three. Um, three teams. And so it's teams. Southampton and Spurs. And Chelsea. Yes, and Chelsea. Because yeah. Thomas Tuchel was fired at the beginning of the season. They hired Graham Potter as a quote-unquote long-term, you know, like project hire to be the, the manager of the future. And then they fired him Yeah, in the middle of the season, in the middle of the Champions League knockouts. And it's... I So I read like an athletic long read about like just how chaotic the season has been on the whole. So one... So there are 20 teams in the Premier League, right? 14 managers have been sacked. That's almost one for every team. Like almost every team has changed managers at some point during the season, which is crazy, like statistically. There's never been more than one team, I believe, in the league at any point in a year who has fired two managers. This year we have three. Three. Right. And I think what's interesting is this is not just a Premier League issue, and we'll get into this. Um, but Chelsea and Spurs are kind of indicative of what I think is sort of a widespread issue that big clubs right now have of kind of just constantly throwing the baby out with the bathwater, constantly demanding immediate results, being impatient 
with coaches when things go wrong and then just immediately firing them and then getting the exact same results and then firing people again. And it just keeps going round and round in a circle and we can go into specific examples, but it is one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen in my entire time following soccer. And thankfully it's not my team right now, or I would feel really bad right now. It's mostly teams that I despise. And so I'm kind of really enjoying it. But at the same time, it's like, what are we doing here? You know? Yeah. It's a it's a mindset that hasn't quite permeated to America in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. There are a few really interesting examples of uh, people who haven't made it that far. Like I think the most recent one would be Urban Meyer, who didn't even last right. a full season in the NFL and was uh, fired after, what was it? 13 games or so um which is like really again really really bad i think the worst example was mike brown who was fired from the lakers after like five games or like something like that um which again like really and now mike brown's doing great with sacramento so that always that comes around in interesting ways but on the whole this isn't something that happens in american sports i love to talk about how the steelers have only had like three coaches since 1970 Mm -hmm. i love that stat that's my favorite stat of all time it's a good stat um but this and but soccer didn't always used to be this way either um this is a new this is a recent development here as well like you've already mentioned there's so many ways in which this is the the most turnover we've had in a single season Ever And I, I really want to kind of dive into the mindset of why these decisions are being made. And then, two, if if they actually like what the strategy is here and if that strategy is at all successful or not. And I think we're going to have a, a pretty similar answer on that, but I, I think we'll find out. Um, in terms of like why this is happening, there is a, a – something you've noticed is that a lot of these like – big teams, the the super teams, the ones who were talked about joining the Super League a few years ago, they a lot of them are having really big structural challenges that mm-hmm. don't just involve managers. There are these huge, massive overpaying for players who then don't do well. There are some like legal matters that a lot of these teams are facing involving their finances. They're just some of them are just not doing well, like Juventus and, and Bayern who have had like but in this case, they actually had like points taken away from them, deducted due to their mismanagement. Um, there have just been, as as this massive influx of money has come into a lot of these teams, there has been some sort of an an instabilizing force. I don't know if instabilizing is a word. Destabilizing. I've made destabilizing <laughs> effect. Yeah. That's what I want to say. Yeah. A destabilizing effect. Um, on these big teams that historically have been run very well, very competently, very successfully. Mm-hmm. And the manager turnover is definitely part of this, but it certainly isn't the only way that this um, instability is being manifested. Yeah. I mean, I think a big part, like you said, with American sports, American sports are different. It's very rare that you have a coach that only lasts one year most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, because there's considerably less jeopardy for a team in a single season in most American sports. In the NFL, if you are the worst team in the league, you get the number one draft pick the next year. 
you know, give or take yeah. certain circumstances. But yeah, the worse you are, the more kind of gifts you're given by the league to make you better the next year. Right. So there's never in most American sports to a degree are the same way. Right. Where the draft kind of compensates you for being poor to increase parity. Soccer is not like that. Right. Soccer in soccer, the best teams are rewarded for being good. The worst teams are basically smacked with financial penalties so severe that some of them never recover, i.e. being relegated. In the Premier League, TV money is staggering, even compared to the rest of European soccer, right? So and that's so if you get relegated from the Premier League, the amount of TV money you make is astronomically lower. And that severely limits your ability to recruit players, to pay players, to expand stadiums, all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's constantly a demand for results now in soccer in a way that isn't maybe as severe as in American sports. And I think that kind of sets the stage here is that if a team is doing really poorly and seems like they won't make the Champions League or they're going to get relegated, ownership structures feel the need to change something during the season to make sure that they get the money that they need to survive as an institution. So that's a really good understanding of kind of the desperation of some of these teams. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, some of the firings have happened nowhere near the relegation zone like Tottenham. But a lot of these ones you've mentioned are kind of near the relegation zone where this impending doom is, is there. But and you're more of a soccer historian than I am. But there's been this idea historically, and I'm kind of aware of it with Manchester United, of the quote-unquote new manager bounce, Mm -hmm. which is that when you fire a manager and replace them, that first few games with the new manager, there's some sort of new energy or something that propels that team to to greater success. For me, the example would be with Manchester United when Jose Mourinho was fired and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came in. One of the Mm -hmm. first things we did then was beat Paris Saint-Germain in the round of 16 in the Champions League. Uh, in a really incredible game. But I guess I'm wondering if that's actually happening this season or if the new manager bounce is kind of a myth. And I guess the question is, does firing your manager actually increase your chance of staying up? Because Southampton, who you mentioned, are on their third manager this season. They're currently at the very bottom of the table. They're going to be relegated. Right. Everton, who fired Frank Lampard this season, they're right now in the relegation zone as well. Leicester fired their manager, Brendan Rodgers. They're pretty close to being relegated, maybe. And then Leeds fired Jesse Marsh this season. They're also, all of these teams I just mentioned are in the bottom five still. They were in the mm-hmm. bottom five when they fired the managers and they haven't been able to get out of it with their new managers. And so I guess, is firing your manager an effective way to kind of keep yourself alive? So there's been a lot of statistical research on this because it's such like a big cliche in soccer specifically. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think there was a book I read called, maybe it's called The Numbers Game or something like that. Um, that I read when I was like way younger and it talked a lot about that issue and kind of about, you know, trying to find examples of whether it actually works or not. I think it's a cliche to a degree because if a team really is doing poorly and you bring someone new in, 
there's kind of that idea of you trying to like earn your place and bringing managers like Sam Allardyce in really did work a lot of the time in the last couple decades, right? Where you fire a manager, you bring in a manager who really knows how to solidify a team and say, please save us from relegation. And he would do it. I mean, you see with with Crystal Palace this year, right? Like Patrick Vieira did a pretty good job there over the last year or so. He got fired, Roy Hodgson came in, and they're completely safe from relegation now. So like there's a positive example of that maybe going the way Palace's ownership wanted it to go. Yeah, Aston Villa too. Mm-hmm. They fired Steven Gerrard, they got Unai Emery, and they've skyrocketed up the table. Exactly. I mean, even think of Chelsea, right, when they hired Thomas Tuchel. Tuchel came in, mm-hmm. and immediately they won the Champions League that season, like when they hired him midseason. It was an immediate, like, 180-degree change, even just, like, in the few days once he took over the team. And they, I think they won their game next game immediately after. Um so I think the new manager bounce absolutely exists to a degree. I don't think it's a guaranteed marker of success, right? But I think teams lean on it when you're in that entering that desperation mode, whether you're fighting for a Champions League spot or you're fighting against relegation. And I think I think where we kind of tie this into these big teams that we're talking about here is I think these teams are starting to reach a premature level of desperation with their managers and with their teams where they're not willing to be patient. They're not willing to actually develop a plan long-term to build success. And when the first steps of their plan don't go the way they exactly want it to, they absolutely lose their minds. And I think that's kind of, I think that's the point where the wheels start sort of coming off for all these big teams. And I think calling Spurs a big team is a little bit of a stretch coming from an Arsenal fan, obviously. But they are still a relatively big team. They're technically a top six team um, in the Premier League historically. And I think they're a great example of the malaise, if you will, that has kind of taken over a lot of these teams. And I know you kind of have been thinking about them a lot as we've sort of been discussing this problem. Well, I mean, yeah. And it's just the impatience... And Spurs is a great example, but, you know, it, it's so overly simple to pretend that if a team is doing badly, it is 100% the manager's fault and that if you mm-hmm. just replace the manager, things get fixed. Because guess what? When you replace the manager, like, they still have the same players. And that's what Antonio Conte said a couple of weeks before he was fired is like, look at my players. They're kind of terrible. <laughs> and... And then, you know, he leaves and the next guy comes in and he has the same players. And guess what? It doesn't work out either. And he's gone too. And so blaming the manager is the single most clear person that you can blame for these kind of things. There is one of them. They have a big job and they're an easy scapegoat. But so many of the actual problems that these teams face are so much more complicated and so much more nuanced than just putting it all on one person that I just... I've bristled so much at this whole concept of just firing managers left and right. It really, really bothers me. And the reason why it bothers me is because turning around a team is a two to three year process for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's that's very, very true in American sports. If you look at like Robert Sala with the Jets or, or the coach of the Eagles or or anyone who, who comes into a tough job, 
Dan Campbell with the Lions. Like they're gonna their first season when they're there, it usually doesn't get better, and a lot of times it gets worse. But over the course of two to three years, that improvement comes. And in soccer, I think it's I think it's the same. Um, like like Manchester United have had a much better season this year with with Ten Hag, but I don't think we're even at the best version of ourselves yet. Like we're still gonna get better, and. I just really bristle at this whole idea that a manager can come in to a team that he didn't build and then just immediately turn things around. I mean, I think I was going to bring up Arsenal, but I think Liverpool is the perfect example of this, actually, because Jurgen Klopp, right, came into a team that had not won the Premier League title in 30 years. Um, It had won Champions Leagues in the last, you know, couple decades, but it was a team that choked when it counted that gave up decisive goals and had a completely leaky defense whenever the pressure got turned on and Klopp took a couple years for their team to really hit its stride to find the players he needed to build his system but when he did right Liverpool was competing with Manchester City which literally has unlimited income right and the greatest coach in the current world like unquestionably I don't think anyone argues that Pep is the smartest mind tactically that we have in the game right now and Klopp beat them both in the Premier League won a Champions League title and pushed City close for the last like three four years every single season even when they didn't win the title and yeah if Liverpool had just fired him when they kind of had some shaky shaky games shaky losses shaky couple of years to kind of start his time there, you know, they would never have had the success that they ended up doing. I think the same is true with Arsenal right now. I mean, there were times when with Mikel Arteta, I, you know, in the last couple of years have been like, I don't know where you're going with this, dude. Is this really like, there's no discernible style of play. Sometimes it feels like players are just making stupid decisions, but Arsenal have had a plan since Unai Emery left. And that was give Mikel the players he needs to make a technically proficient team that can move the ball forward, that can press really well, that can play really organized soccer. And it's really worked out. You know, even if Arsenal doesn't win the league, this unquestionably is a successful year for the club. Yeah. I would I will be upset with the way this season has ended if we don't go on to win. But at the same time, it's unquestionably given the amount of resources we have. I mean, even if you look at like, I was playing FIFA last night. Even if you look at the ratings of the players in on Arsenal squad compared to City or Liverpool squad right now, like the, the caliber of the players we have shouldn't necessarily be competing with the likes of Man City right now. Um, and yet they're right up there with them. Right, and I think that's a really yeah. remarkable testament to what the job Arteta has done, um, and it's a testament to showing patience, right, when things don't go well. Right, Arsenal missed out on the Champions League last season, like in the last few games, and it was a really frustrating end of the season. Um, but the management still kind of kept the faith and said, like, you know, we trust that you are following your plan, right. And I think sometimes a manager comes around like Brendan Rodgers at Leicester and you're like, you're trying to fulfill a plan and this is not working over multiple years. And at that point, maybe it's time to pull the plug, right? Like with Steven Gerrard at Aston Villa. But I think not giving a manager the chance to execute their plan at a team 
is basically just a cop out on the entire process of trying to build a team. Yeah. Yeah. I think usually, and you know it's about me, John, but usually with the teams that I support, I'm kind of the last person to come around to the idea that the manager is the problem. Right. Um, I was definitely that way with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United. Like, I was kind of like, well, I'm human. I, I think I still thought that he could be the guy much longer than many Manchester United fans and many neutral observers like yourself would have thought. Um, but now that we've, we, you know, we found our guy mm-hmm. in Eric Ten Hag, and I feel, I feel really great about it. And if we, you know, we we haven't had the best season. We've had some really disappointing results in the Europa League and in other places. And, you know, you power through. Um, right. I do want to kind of, I do want to kind of see if we can identify, we've kind of talked about like what, why this is a problem and why this isn't always work and why. But I do want to kind of, if we can isolate what's causing this. Mm-hmm. And obviously the the common denominator is ownership especially right. with these owners who are firing multiple managers in the same season. But specifically what's causing the owners to do this? Because for me, I think that competent sports management involves listening to the fans, but not reacting to the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and incompetent ownership can often be making decisions specifically to appease the fans. Right. And why should we not appease the fans, John? Because they're actually not always that smart about what they're talking about. <laughs> That's correct. If they were, if they were experts in soccer, guess where they would be? Not fans. management. They yeah. Would be in man- they would be in management if they were actually good at this, but they're not, and so they sit at the bar and then complain on Twitter. And then Todd Bully, the owner of Chelsea, sees them complaining on Twitter and is like, oh, no, my fans don't like what's going on. I must appease them by firing this manager who they do not like, even though they probably don't even know why they don't like him because they don't really know that much. But but they don't like him and he's not winning. So he must go, even though he is winning more games and he's not winning. Whatever. It doesn't matter. The whole th- my whole point is owners have to understand that it is the people in their headquarters making decisions who know what they're talking about mm-hmm. they're the experts and if you're if you don't think the people in your football in your soccer management team are experts fire them and get new experts but if you have confidence in your director of football in your sporting director in in your people involved in management then trust them and i think that this idea that we have to just react to whatever the fans want is just the most destabilizing way to run any professional sports team. And it usually never works out because the fans are just mad, not because they're seeing what a manager is doing tactically or because they care about the XG or because they care about anything other than, oh man, we lost again and that makes me sad. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to get too political here, but I think what we're seeing here is is the Trump effect. Hmm being carried out in sports right where you have a really you have someone who wants to connect to his fan base right he knows exactly what he wants and then you just kind of chop and change your staff willy-nilly if you don't like them if they're not doing exactly what you want without any semblance of a plan right just to kind of get your agenda sort of carried out in the people in the like the will of the people basically you're trying to create social media furor you're trying to 
get people to like you or not like you, right? And you can't base a successful business or a presidency or a country on public opinion or on just random whims, right? And what feels like Todd Bowley at Chelsea is kind of doing that, right? Where he just says, oh, we should sign this player. Let's buy him. And whoever's the coach at the time is like, why do we need another wide forward when we already have 18? And he's like, I don't know. He seems good. We should buy him. It's like, what has... Arsenal was pursuing Mikhailo Mudrik from Shakhtar right in the winter. Yeah. Shakhtar wanted 80 million pounds for him. And we said, you know what? We don't know that he's worth that much. Maybe we should go sign someone else. Chelsea then comes in and says, oh, we'll sign him. He's basically done nothing. Having been signed for 80 million pounds. Yeah. And you got Jorginho. And Leandro Trossard, who has done a lot for like a third of the price. So I don't know. It's just, it feels like none of these teams have a plan. That's the real problem yeah. here. Let me just say this. If, if, if any owners of big sports teams are listening and you want to hire me as your general manager, <laughs> let me make my pitch. <laughs> there are times when you realize that you have instantly made a mistake in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think Urban Meyer is a great example of that. Like, I think before the first game of that season, I think a lot of people, I would raise my hand as one of them, thought this is a terrible decision. Um, in soccer, let's look at Nuno Espirito Santo at Tottenham. He lasted 11 games and was fired, and I don't think anyone thought that he was up for that job when he got mm-hmm. it as the right. replacement for Jose Mourinho. But here's my pitch to owners. If you believe that the reasoning why you hired a particular manager is solid, Give them two years, no matter what. If you believe in them, if you thought, if you have, if you believe in the reasons why you gave them the opportunity in the first place, give them two full years to change out the players, to establish their system, to influence the academy, the youth teams, to recruit, to 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 drill, to do whatever they need to do, and then in two years judge their results. So so the beginning of year three is when you start demanding results. But the trend of this industry across all sports is that it takes two to three years. And I think that's consistent in American football. It's consistent in European football. It's consistent in basketball as well. It takes some time. Mm -hmm. And patience is a virtue. Impatience is a reaction. Right. But yeah, that's, that's my pitch. So if anyone wants to hire me, that's 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 that is the ethos with which I would bring to your team: <laughs> stability, structure, and patience. I think they should hire you. As and a I would stay. Consultant. And I would stay off Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think they should. I think Bayern is a perfect example of this this season. I am a known doubter of Julian Nagelsmann. Right, I have made my stance on him very clear over the last few years. However, he's a pretty solid coach. He's not, yeah. I don't think he's like the greatest mind, young mind ever come to soccer, but I think he's a pretty smart guy. Bayern fired him because Thomas Tuchel was available because basically their management said he didn't win pretty enough. That was like, there were actual quotes from inside the organization, basically saying they didn't like his style. Right. He had lost three games that season. Thomas Tuchel in the seven or eight games since he took over from Julian Nagelsmann has already lost three games and went out of the Champions League, 
and may lose the Bundesliga title to Dortmund. Right. Which they were leading <laughs> on the day that they fired Nagelsmann. Right. Bayern were top of the table. And as of this moment, they are not. Right. So they, they have they have literally downgraded. They they have, yeah. like in terms of status of manager and big name manager and tactical genius, they have technically upgraded. But in terms of the fit for that team, they made a change and it immediately got worse. Right. And so the, the question is, why did you make that decision? Right. In the middle of the season, this is not a long term plan like, oh, we have a plan for this team to go in a specific stylistic direction. And Thomas Tuchel is our guy. They said, Thomas Tuchel is available. We don't like what's happening with Nagelsmann right now. We're just changing right now. And what's happened is not good things, right? And I think the difference the difference between all these super teams, you know, whether you have financial problems or management issues or whatever, the difference between them and Manchester City right now, which admittedly has unlimited resources, but so does PSG. PSG is also a state-owned yeah. club. The difference is that Man City has built a team for a strategic mastermind and said, we want to do whatever it takes to build this club with you from the ground up to be exactly what you need to win at all costs. We can talk about City's financial potential discrepancies and the questionable nature of some of their financial investment from Abu Dhabi and all that stuff. But when it comes down to it, with the money that they have, they have engineered a basically perfect team. And Pep never rests on his laurels. You never feel like he's letting his standards slip with his players. He has been there for years. And City, every single year, feels like an invincible force because they have not just spent insane money on players, but because they've spent money on the right players at the right times and then moved on the right players when it's time to move them on. And that's intelligence consistently over and over and over and over and over again. And the difference between that and teams like Man United over the last few years, up until now, you know, like it's starting to be fixed, but the amount of money that United has spent or... Chelsea is pretty comparable to what City has spent. We don't like to talk about that. They've just spent it badly. They've just spent it badly. And City is making yeah. the right decisions because they have a plan, right? And I think, yeah. like, I think you're totally right. Like, having patience and having a plan makes the difference in professional sports. And if we don't have that, then basically you just get cut adrift and you go nowhere. Yeah, and your plan has to precede the investment. Exactly. You know, like like the the next Chelsea manager is gonna because Chelsea's has spent so much money, they're gonna have to find a manager that fits the players that have already been created, which is a worse way than getting the manager you know you want first and then letting them bring in their own players, which is what Pep has done, and that's that's the best example of that. Like, think about think about Chelsea spent more money on Enzo Fernandez than City spent in transfer fees on Erling Holland. Right. Yeah. Like, like who made the smarter investment there? Obviously, Holland's fees outside of the transfer fee aren't reflected in that. Like, I'm sure he's spending, costing City a ton of money. But still, the transfer fee that Chelsea yeah. paid was astronomically more. It was like double the price for the mm -hmm. best striker in the world. Right. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. And, and John, as I hear you 
as I hear you just just praise the the laurels of Manchester City, I know that just it's just going to feel so good when you beat them today. I really and hope so. so. I'm not going to say anything about it. Uh, yeah, when you hear this but. podcast, you'll know what happened, and you'll know the tone of the text that you should send to John. Um, <laughs> just check the score first. Um, but seriously, I mean, it's getting now. We're getting to this big point in the season, and today feels like a really momentous day. And um, that's why I think we should probably kind of wrap this up here in a minute, so that you can you can should. go enjoy this full mm-hmm. experience. And um, I, I'm happy that you get to have an experience like this because it's been a long time coming for a team like Arsenal, mm-hmm. and to even be in the position where in late April you can win the title is a big step. Like you said earlier. Um, no matter what happens, obviously it's been a good season either way. But I'm, I can't say I'm not a little envious of where you guys are. <laughs> um, I certainly am. But um, I'll take the trophy that we do have already this year mm-hmm. over the one that you guys might have. So That's yeah. correct. And who knows? The way we're both trending, this may be us in a few years. It'd be great. It'd be great. A crunching tackles derby for the title would be one of the greatest things to ever happen. And also really problematic. It would be so problematic. I don't know if we would speak to each other. <laughs> It'd be really problematic. It'd be fun though. It would be fun. It would be. Um, John, yeah. do you have anything else on this before before you uh, you get over to the Arsenal the Arsenal um, fan festivities in Nashville today? I don't think so. I think I I just want to reiterate again. I mentioned this at the top of the hour, but I just want the record to show. Having finished full swing, I have watched like five or six full hours of golf at least now um like on tv so the netflix strategy is a winning strategy and like non-major yeah well i watched the masters and then i watched um the rbc heritage like a lot of it there was yeah. something else on yeah. i think there was i forget what sport was on but maybe it was the nba playoffs and i was watching golf instead of the nba playoffs at the beginning and it was just a really strange moment but i just want the record awesome. to show that that's a it's a score for chad um, after many yeah, years it's, it's, on this podcast of me complaining about golf, like I've given in. It's a score for Chad, and it's also a score for for justice that John Rahm beat all the glove guys at the top of the Masters. That's correct. Scoreboard. That is correct. No Phil, no Brooks, no uh, Patty Reed. It was mm-hmm. uh, it was John Rahm, the uh, the Spanish PGA player, PGA player, I might add. Mm-hmm. Who uh, who took it? And I I was really happy about that. It was a great 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 tournament. He is uh, he's a good player, um, but you're right though that the full swing model. And we talked about this at the time, but it makes you care about the people. Mm-hmm. And when you care about the people, it, it sometimes doesn't even matter what it is that you're watching. If you if you exactly. know their story and you care, and uh, it is it is a really successful model. Um, mm-hmm. I do want to really get into um, as I finish these two. I'm really I want to do Drive to Survive the whole thing. Yeah, I and, think we uh, should. I think we should watch it. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, I think. But yeah, anyway, um, that's all I got. Do you have anything? You got to get going here because you're driving to Nashville to go to an actual like Arsenal uh, venue to enjoy this game Mm -hmm. with some with some like-minded fans, and um, it'll be great because you'll have uh, friends, new friends to either celebrate or commiserate with (laughs) or cry with, and um, (laughs) hopefully it'll be the former. That's the hope. Do you have anything else for the for the listeners on our return? No. Do you want to do you want to make an already do you want to make a an already determined other time people will listen to this prediction about how this game is going to go? No. <laughs> you do not. Okay. I do not. <laughs> we'll just say this. Um, we'll say this. I 
we're capable of winning this game. Mm. Playing at our best. We're capable of winning this game. I don't think that we will. The last three games have been pretty poor. Our last game against City was an okay performance, but we were just not good enough in the end. And I currently feel pretty down about our odds of winning the league. Probably the lowest Mm. I've been at any point this season. It is a possibility, but I would not bet money on myself at this current moment. That's what I'll say. Wow. Wow. No belief. No inner belief. (laughs) Um, (laughs) With my head, I know that Manchester City is going to win this game. They're the better team. No one disputes that. But with my heart, for you, John... Thank you, I'm going to envision a scenario in which it is 2-2 <laughs> in the 79th minute and Martin Odegaard curls in a game winner in the 79th minute that leads Arsenal on to a title. And I, I say that for you. I'm manifesting that. I believe it in my heart, though I don't believe it in my head at all. Uh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> hopefully it'll happen. <laughs> yeah, Hopefully. Um, thank you guys so much for, for uh, welcoming us back by listening. It's, I know it's been a while, and um, we're going to figure out a consistent schedule here as John gets into his new job, and we learn mm-hmm. kind of the ins and outs of that. Um, but do not fear, Crunchy Tackles is not going anywhere. Um, we can move locations, but as long as Skype exists, this continues. So I mean, we've been doing um, it virtually for years. So it's for, like, for a long time. Yeah. So uh, no amount of distance can uh, can change that. So Mm-mm. enjoy the game, John. I really hope you do. Thank you, I sir. hope you meet lots of new, lots of new like-minded friends in Nashville uh, who enjoy Arsenal as well. Mm. And until next week, we hope that you all continue to be well and be safe. And we'll talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys. <laughs>